0: I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, Katsu Global. Katsu has made a huge difference in my life, both in strength and recovery, so I am very thankful for their support of this podcast. I'll tell you a little bit more about Katsu later on in this episode. Today's guest, Dominique Mochiano, was a member of the first U.S. women's gymnastics team to win Olympic gold in 1996. The Magnificent Seven, as they were dubbed by the media, broke barriers in the sport and inspired generations to come with their monumental Olympic victory for the United States. Dominique remains the youngest Olympic gold medalist in U.S. gymnastics history at the tender age of 14. She's also the youngest senior U.S. national all-around champion in history at age 13. She's a nine-time U.S. national team member, as well as back-to-back junior and senior all-around national champion. She's a world championship silver and bronze medalist, and in 1998, Dominique became the only American woman in history to win the Goodwill Games all-around title. She's been inducted into the USA Gymnastics Hall of Fame and the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame with her 1996 teammates. While her accomplishments are absolutely phenomenal, they came at a heavy price. Dominique authored a New York Times best-selling memoir titled Off Balance, which shared her story, shining a light on making the sport safer for future generations of athletes. Having long called for improvements and positive change in her sport, Dominique has become an advocate for young athletes in an attempt to provide them with support and safety measures that she herself never received. Dominique believes athletes can have a healthy experience free from abuse and still be successful at the highest levels of their respective sports. She was even called to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee to push for a system of mandates to protect child athletes from abuse. Today, Dominique is the proud business owner of the Dominique Mochiano Gymnastics Center, where she practices exactly what she has preached, offering a safe, supportive, and enjoyable experience for young athletes. One of the challenges that many athletes I talk to face is staying focused in a competition. It's common for athletes to train great and feel prepared going into a competition, but then when it's time to compete, their mind is suddenly everywhere except where it should be on the task at hand in the moment. There are so many distractions and thoughts that race through our minds on meet day. Sometimes it's worries about the other competitors and how we think we'll measure up. Other times we're worried about what the judges will think of our abilities, or maybe it's about disappointing parents or upsetting coaches. The list just goes on, right? Well, when an athlete is focused on everything but what they have to do in order to perform well, they're likely not gonna perform the way that they're hoping. So I created a little freebie for my pursuit peeps. Yes, that's you. That gives you five ways to stay focused in a competition. To get your hands on this freebie, just visit laurawilkinson.com slash focus. That's laurawilkinson.com slash focus. Before we start, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give us a five-star review. If you're enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast, please tell your friends about this podcast because that helps us to grow and improve and that allows us to level up and bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Dominique Muciano, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so excited to finally have you on. (laughs) Thank you, Laura. So happy to be with you. Well, and one of the reasons we couldn't get you on, I just want to talk about it right at the beginning is you had a new child this year. It was some ups and downs. Like tell us how you're doing, how she's doing. How's the family? Well, you know, having
1: another child at 40, oh my goodness, and almost 41, but it's been a whirlwind. I mean, obviously I had her at 40 and life is very different. I'm 41 now, but going through all of that and my body just physically was so worn out. I did not expect to be so physically run down to where I had a tough time recovering from this one emergency uh, section. I had so much blood loss that I had a blood transfusion. Oh my goodness. Um, and so I just felt completely out of sorts for four days after I delivered, I just could not even get up because I'd never had oh, wow. a C-section, and so there was so much going on that I did not plan. I planned on popping her out and going back to championships <laughs> with the girls, you know. I was like, oh yeah, I'll pop her out. I'm going to go right to the, you know, the Eastern Championships for level nine the following weekend, and then level ten. Of course, I will <laughs> because
0: that's my mindset as an athlete, right? I can right. do that too. Let's dive back into your gymnastics career. Let's kind of start at the beginning because you were really successful really young. Like take us through kind of the beginning of your journey and how that all, it just happened so fast. So (laughs) walk us through that.
1: Yes. Well, I started gymnastics at the age of three. For those of you who don't know, I have immigrant parents who immigrated to the United States from Romania. And obviously in Romania, Nadia Comaneci was the biggest icon at the time. And my mom is, basically Nadia's age. And so she grew up, you know, watching her and and seeing her reach stardom and in their country, that was it. Either you did gymnastics or soccer and soccer (laughs) was a huge sport. But other than soccer, if you were a girl, gymnastics was the thing to do. And my dad said to my mom that, Hey, our first child is going to be a gymnast. And whether I wanted to do it or not, I was going to be introduced to it. (laughs) And at six months old, My parents tested my strength and held me from a clothesline because at the time they did not have a washer and dryer, so they washed everything. Now I say my mom washed everything by hand, and (laughs) my dad tried to put food on the table. You know, and he was out working trying to make ends meet. I mean, they came to the United States with fifteen dollars in their pocket, and um, my mom was pregnant right away. She didn't know any English, so she had a British version, like a British English version of English. You know, so she could learn through her dictionary. And then she learned with cartoons. And so it was just a really big move for them because my mom had never been away from her family. Mm -hmm. So, long story short, by the age of three, and I'll go back one second for the the clothesline, um, when they tested my strength, basically I had all held on till the clothesline broke. Of course, they they caught (laughs) me. My dad was like, "Uh aha, okay, she's going to be a gymnast. This is going to be her sport. She's destined to do it. So, that was kind of like, My dad always super excited and he would always have such enthusiasm sharing that story like, aha, that was the moment we knew in his thick Romanian accent. And then by the age of three, I started and my parents started figuring out life in America. I was born in Hollywood, California, and then kind of the rest is history. By the age of three, when gymnastics started, I loved it right away and then moved up the ranks very quickly. We moved to Chicago for a period of time, my parents and um, some family Had opened up a Greek restaurant and they were going in the family business together. So they stayed there for six years. And I did gymnastics and really started gymnastics there in a more intense manner. And for six years, loved it. Then I moved to Tampa. My parents were done with the winners. They were like, no more Chicago winners for us. They moved to Tampa and they were ready for the warm weather. And that's where I really feel like my career started taking off at LaFleur's gymnastics. And that's where I became optional gymnast and Jeff and Julie LaFleur own LaFleur's and Jeff LaFleur still to this day has his program and his children run it now. So I was able to reconnect with him after all these years, but he really was a very compassionate coach. And I think at the time, that's what I needed. I needed to be nurtured and in a loving environment and they were really great. And Beth Hare used to coach there. She was the beam coach. And then my optional career took off and Jeff really noticed that I had some Olympic potential and I was doing skills at a very high level at eight, and nine years old. And at nine years old, I'd done a triple back off of bars, which, you know, Laura, that's three somersaults. And most kids at nine years old, that is not even something you can comprehend. They're just struggling with one single flip. Mm-hmm. And so my coach was starting to notice that, Hey, she has some real Olympic potential here. And funny thing is, is, you know, at that time, my parents sat down with the coach and um, he's, you know, like, what do we do? You know? And, and my dad started researching he's like, well, maybe Bella Caroli is the option because that's where a lot of the elites seem to go. And that's where the training seems to be at that high level. And he had the Romanian background. So my parents could speak to him. So I think they felt that kind of affinity towards them and Marta and Bella Crowley at the time. And they felt like politically they had the power in the sport, um, which I didn't know anything about at the
0: time. Right.
1: So we sat down and did it the right way with our coach. We didn't just leave them and abandon them and not say anything, which Super you know, important. yeah, really hurtful. And it's a lesson that you learn when your parents teach you, hey, you sit down and you actually say thank you or, or you write a card. And and so we did and we told them. And of course, Jeff was saddened, but understood, you know, and I felt like my parents did it the right way when I look back. And little did I know what was to become of my training. I mean, everything went from bright and encouraging and nurturing to all of a sudden a huge shift of the gym is cold. It's the environment is stressful. You're constantly humiliated and berated and, and trying to do things out of fear rather than out of nurture and love. And, you know, tough love is fine. I'm all good with that. But there was a fear component, like a threatening component to that training. And that's, what scared me to death when I went and I, you know, moved at nine uh, and a half to Carole's in in Houston, Texas, and that's where my family still stayed. My sisters still there. My mom just moved up to help me with the baby to Ohio, but she lived there as well for many years ever since. And so the training there really began for the Olympics, and I remember it just being such a stark contrast of here was this like I loved it, and Jeff was so nurturing and caring and Beth and Julie at LaFleur's. And then all of a sudden here I was, and I didn't even feel like I belonged. I, I just felt so out of place. I was so scared to go to practice. I was scared of making a mistake. I mean, you you can't mm-hmm. be in the right mindset to pull the best out of yourself when you're terrified. And there are two kinds of motivations, right? Two kinds of motivators are either fear or, you know, there's the the motivation of a coach encouraging you. Mm-hmm. And I much, rather would be the encourager. And I think that kids will would succeed more if you have that pathway. And then you give them discipline and, and you teach them work ethic. And that's how I coach today. And I think all of that made me a better coach because I learned who I didn't want to be. Right. And I learned my own style. But that was so terrifying to go into practice and how could I be my best and do it out of such fear that I was so scared of making a mistake, even in practice, so scared. I just didn't feel warm. And, and I look back and I'm like, how in the world did I train 40 hours a week like that? I just don't even know. And, you know, I trained with Maribella for a period of time as a junior before the 92 girls went to the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. So I trained with Kim Zemesco, Betty Okino, Hilary Grivich, Carrie Strug at the time. So may Hillary rest in peace. You know, she was just she was a sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Um, Then went into diving, actually, at
0: the Woodlands, you know? Yeah, we were teammates and good friends, yeah.
1: Yeah, and Mm -hmm. so when I found that out, Hillary, I was just so devastated because I remember how Bella used to kick her out all the time, and he would call her Pluto because apparently she looked like, you know, Pluto the cartoon. And it was just kind of, I never took it as an endearing compliment because he'd be like, Pluto, get out. And I was so scared at, 10 you know, 10 years old. I'm like, why is he kicking her out of the gym? And my heart broke for her, you know, and she used to keep these diaries that her mom ended up finding later on. And so this environment was something I just had never expected. But you learn really quick how you need to behave, how you need to conform and what gets you in trouble and what doesn't. And so training was just very different then. And, and then when Marta and Bella went to the Olympics, I had a break and there were like 14 different coaches that I went through in a period of two years. People were in and out. It was a revolving door. And honestly, I don't even know how my training stayed somewhat consistent, but I think by the grace of God and just my motivation, my internal desire to be great, I stayed motivated somehow. And I was defeated at times, but I would be bounced around from this coach to that coach. Did that
0: actually help you think? Like change of pace with yes. different people? Like yeah. Might
1: have at the time been good because I could not continue that intensity four years straight. Mm-hmm. And so when my Russian coach came in, then Marta started coming back in and doing balance beam. And you can handle like an hour beam with Marta here and there. You know, we know that she's this way and that way, but at least you got a break from her. And she wasn't the whole four hours of morning practice and evening. It was like one hour of compulsory, one hour of optionals in the evening. So that could be manageable. And then my Russian coach started coming in at like age 12, 13, and he really was a godsend. He taught me so much. Alexander Alexandrov. he still lives in Houston and he's traveled, you know, back and forth, helped the Brazilian national team, went back to Russia, helped him. And my dear friend Svetlana still lives in Houston. And she talks to me about, yeah, he's helping this gym club now. And we're both together and he's back home. And, you know, I ask how he's doing and he's doing well. So I'm glad to hear that. But it was really thanks to him that my gymnastics evolved. And it wasn't like a typical Karoli gymnast look. I felt that it had more of a European style to it. And I learned skills that Bella did not know how to teach. He didn't know how to teach these higher level skills. He kind of took you as a somewhat polished gymnast and had the skills and then tried to just, you know, do it. Refine you a little bit, a little bit, but he was more about the drilling the numbers Mm. and, you know, he did not have a lot of ability to teach new skills when I was training, he might've with some other people, but that wasn't my experience. Like he'd never taught me a new skill. I would say Okay. it was stuff that i had already been taught. And then he maybe, you know, worked on some techniques here and there, and then he would spot here and there. And then you would just keep kind of going. Sometimes it's like, okay, you chuck the next thing. And instead of like a progression, <laughs> it's like, okay, <laughs> if you can do it, do it. Okay. Well, I'll try. And, um, so that's kind of how that went, but, um, I just remember, you know, he would swear at us at the chalk tray in Hungarian when he didn't want me and to understand. And so Betty ended up speaking Romanian, Betty Okino. And (laughs) so he didn't know that for the longest time. So she would tell the girls what he was saying when him and Marta did not know that she could speak Romanian. And so once they figured it out, because she would tell them everything they were saying. And she's like, He's like totally making fun of us right now. He's totally swearing at us. And he's calling us all sorts of names. And then when they found out that she was half Romanian, they switched to Hungarian. And so so I, yeah, I basically, um, you know, was at the tail end of all that. And mostly that happened with the 92 girls that were in training more than me, but it's kind of funny because I could speak to them in Romanian, but every now and then they pull it out. But With me, mostly English. And yeah, so that was the training. And then leading up to the Olympics, thanks to Alexander, I would say that uh, Bella then came in right as I was preparing for the 1995 national championships. And I won the juniors the year before. And then right away, back to back, I was able to win the seniors. And he saw that my preparation was in such great shape that he decided to fire Alexander for whatever reason we never knew. But he then took over. And it was like, literally in practice one day, we lined up. And it's like, he's gone. Nobody even talked about it. It was just like Bella took over and he didn't even say Alexander's gone. Nobody said goodbye. It was wow. just like, that's it finished next to And we were just standing there like, um,
0: and that was a 95
1: right before senior wow. nationals. It was right before the meet Wow, like that month before about, and then all of a sudden you get this different kind of coaching. Like that was inconsistent of what we you know, it was just kind of funny because Alexander would always be like Bella crazy. He would always <laughs> tell me in Hungary and he's like Bella crazy. And I'm like, I know, <laughs> I'm like, I know. But, you know, it was just kind of that banter we had. It was a good relationship that, you know, I had with Alexander and he would just joke around. But I felt like he was such a great technician and mm-hmm. that's what made me evolve my gymnastics. So I have a debt of gratitude to him for training me in that manner. And always being like real, he was a very real coach and you can tell he had a a good system. And so I'm thankful for that. And then Bella took over and Marta fully in that last year and a half. And um, then we went to the Olympics in 96 and kind of that rest is history.
0: And all that well, so, so we we know and like most people have probably looked back and, and seen, you know, it's the magnificent seven and you guys won that team gold medal, the first team gold medal for for USA women's gymnastics. That was so awesome. But what was that lead up like? Because you, like you said, had just burst onto the scene. Suddenly you have a new coach right before this nationals, where that was you won, right? As as uh what were we 13, like the youngest ever, right? And then then on the Olympic team with these new coaches, like what, what is that whole kind of, yeah, lead up like, and then your Olympic experience?
1: Yeah. Well, because I'd had experience with them at, you know, nine and a half, when I first came to the gym, I kind of expected and knew what the standard was and I knew how they were training. And then I was just a little bit older and I became really good at balance beam and Marta came in when I was working with Alexander. So she still did balance beam during that time with me. So I still had that intensity with her, But Alexander would balance her out. And so and then it was just two super intense people at the time and there was no balancing out. And so it was very stressful. I mean, everything changed Um, when I would go to eat. Martin Bella would sit right with you like I wasn't allowed at the Olympics to sit with my teammates. It was the five teammates, Carrie and myself with Martin Bella at every single meal so they could watch what we ate to make sure we didn't overeat. And so it was just a lot of pressure and you never felt comfortable eating. And so everything when it came to that was really awkward and really uncomfortable because I was 75 pounds, I was 14, not really much fat on me. So it wasn't like that needed to be such a thing, but they were so obsessed with weight and all of that. it was like if you had a bad practice, it was about your weight, and that's not really the case, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just fatigue or you're just tired, or that intensity and pressure you have to come down at some point in order to recharge mm-hmm. and I've learned you know I'm learning about that you know so much more, especially in the last like ten years since I've been coaching and even before that, but it's just been just so different how i how I wish that we were taught in at that time, because I think I could have reached even a a higher level of potential. Uh Um, And I'm lucky that I made it as far as I did with that kind of intensity. Most teenagers would break. Uh Most teenagers would not be able to handle it. And I was somehow one of the survival of the fittest kind of situations. I honestly look back and I'm like, how in the world did I do that? Like, I just don't even know. But sometimes you have this desire and this one track mind, like I want to be an Olympic champ. I'll do whatever it takes. And I'll put myself through this abuse, but you don't know yet because you can't articulate, you know, it's wrong, but you can't articulate why. And you're supposed Mm -hmm. to have the adults advocate for you. So I think that's ultimately why I became so outspoken because I never had that voice for myself. And I think it all starts to make sense now in hindsight, why I became that way. But I'm forever grateful that I was able to go to the Olympics, despite all of this, because all of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes, people never knew because once the lights were turned on, I was a competitor. It was like, okay, time to shine. And then Mm -hmm. if I made a mistake, I knew that I was going to get in trouble, but I still, that part was natural. That was innate. Nobody told me how to act when I was competing in that way. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of the interviews, they were very natural to me. And I spoke out of the you know goodness of my heart in a natural way. I never had any training in that. It was just who I was, and so uh, maybe some of that was stifled because of fear and not being able to say everything I wanted. but I also was very honest at the time with what I had in my repertoire of skills and knowledge and age and all of that but i'm forever grateful to have been a part of history because that changed the landscape of gymnastics forever, and I've said that so many times, like so many little girls and and little boys looked up to our team and they wanted to do gymnastics. And, you know, I I still get people who are like, I vividly remember being with my parents and watching that Olympics. And, and it just, it's really very gratifying that to know that people through even all that I went through, that people were inspired by that moment, by our team success and wanted to join the sport because of um, our team and what we did. And, And it it felt really good to know that we had made that kind of impact on a generation. And Mm -hmm. so that to me will always remain special in my heart, no matter what I was going through. Sure, do I wish it was awesome and better because I had imagined it and dreamed it so much bigger and so much better. And like my coaches were proud of me. But when I walked to the podium, I hate to say it, like I was crying before I went up there and not tears of joy, Mm. tears of sadness because I felt that my coaches weren't proud of me because I made a mistake on vault. Yet oh, all, wow. all other scores, all my other seven apparatuses contributed to the team score, right? The compulsory and optionals combined, except vault. But had we even used that score, let's say, and I think this always makes me feel better, that we still would have won. So it didn't matter. That's mm-hmm. why when I look back and I'm like, they ruined such a, such a pivotal moment for me mm-hmm. to have that joy that pure elation that someone feels and I get choked up about it because they took that away from me. Mm-hmm.
0: And it should have been the coolest moment of your life. Right. Definitely. It's amazing because, you know, as I talk to athletes to, um, you know, I'm starting to, to coach them on mindset and, and performance and things like that. And it's talking to people and, and saying, like, it is great to have this goal, but mm-hmm. like standing on the podium, whether, however it happens, like it's, it's not necessarily going to be what you wanted it to be and whether it's good or bad, it's over in a hot second. So what did you do on the way to get there? That's what you take with you. And that's what you remember. And so trying to help athletes create a journey that becomes memorable, that becomes something they're proud of, even if there is a mistake made, right. It's, but I've been through a lot of ups and downs too. not quite the same experiences you've had, but like what we learn on there and what we can give back to this next generation. I love that you're doing that with your gym now and 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 that you became outspoken. And and well, but let's back up though a little bit. You again, I was telling you this before we started recording. You have so much in your story that we can unpack, but we only have an hour. So we gotta kind of some of the big points. But yes, but after that that 96 Olympics, did you take a break? I know you did come back because you had a phenomenal moment in 98. And I and I want to talk about that and ask if that was a different experience from 96, how it compared, like walk us through that time.
1: Yes, yeah, so 96 had obviously a mixed uh, set of emotions for me. And ultimately that was derived from how others made me feel. And I started to realize how, how much weight I put into that over the years. And as I became an adult and I started to reflect a little bit more but the maturity, you know, came with time as it does for everyone. And at that time I was heartbroken, but then I went on tour and I had to have, you know, get to have the time of my life with my teammates. And we got to tour the country and live in a tour bus like rock stars. And here we're in a, you know, another city next time we're in another city, next day we're in another city and performing to sold out arenas. I mean, that's where I really felt, so appreciated Mm. in that love the fans gave back that I didn't feel when I reached that pivotal moment. It was like, okay, I feel better about it all, you know? And and I think that I wanted a medal individually as well. And I, you know, landed on my head on balancing where I was like, that would have been my event. And then I got fourth and, you know, just missing the podium on floor. So it was just like, man, I knew I had that potential, but the mindset with everything going on, it wasn't the place i needed to be to probably be my even my best but it was good enough for a gold right so yeah. at the end of the day
0: good I, enough for gold i like that right <laughs> you got to coin that
1: exactly i don't even know where that came from laura but that i've totally <laughs> never used that before so first on your you self. heard it here first, first yes, folks exactly i actually really like that but <laughs> but then i had a huge growth spurt so after that time off you know most people who don't understand what touring's like, it's, it's a much more relaxed environment and we tried to keep in shape during the tour, but obviously we're not doing our full hardest routines, but our team actually did a much high, set, like of higher level of difficulty than many, many tours did. And I really commend our teammates because we did like full beam sets and layout layouts and double backs. And we did double backs every night on floor, even if it was a cold arena and our ankles were freezing and stung and so it is, you know, a matter of like pride in your gymnastics. And I think our mm-hmm. team really did a good job with not watering down the difficulty too much, but keeping it to a level that we were proud of. And I'm really proud of our team for that. And I always said out of almost a hundred cities, I only fell twice on beam. Mm-hmm. And that's like, really, I was really proud of that. So after the it's Olympics, impressive, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I had a pretty good hit percentage out of all of them be in floor. I rarely ever fell. so even doing a little more difficulty. I was layout layout just about every night, round off, double back every night. And so punch front. And that really made me feel good. Cause my goal was to hit every night and how many could I go and hit and how long could I go without having a miss and only a couple of times. And, and that to me made me feel really good post the Olympics, uh, let down, I would say of all of it. Cause we all, all of us feel that that super high. And then all of a sudden let down, but then you go on tour and it's another high. And then a letdown. And then you're like, what do I do with my life? Right. Uh and So everybody goes to that and most Olympians and and people just don't talk about how much of a depression that can be in your life. Uh And all you feel you've done is gymnastics your whole life. Like, who are you? What's your identity? No one helps you through that process and navigate that process. And like you Uh said, it's the journey you want to be proud of because those moments happen in a blink of an eye and, and you're done. And Mm -hmm. so you put all your eggs in one basket and you put all this pressure in this one goal, and and it can be great and it can create a lot of great moments and memories, but you are so much more than that. And that's what I realized later on that this is not who I am, it's what I do. And I love what I do and I'm passionate about what I do, but you can't let it become who you are because so many people identify with, you know, I'm this is me, I'm the gymnast. And that's great. There's parts of that that are really good. You just got to be careful of it getting convoluted. Because you can go through a deep, dark depression after, after you don't feel like you have an identity anymore. And so I feel like I went through a little bit of up and down after the Olympics, after the tour, Bella and Mara told my parents, well, she should just retire. She, she, she's, I'm like 15 years old. My dad's like, what? Yeah. And my dad's like, who's going to coach her? And so they had this conversation without my knowledge. And I only knew like later on. So I was okay with Bella not coaching me. He was on the tour the entire time and barely said two words to me when we'd cross paths. So I was a disposable means to an end and that's it. I, he got that job and he acted like he never even coached me in my life on tour. He barely even spoke to me. And it was so weird for me as a 15 year old. I'm yeah. like, yay, freedom. But yet I still kind of intimidated by you, but yet you don't talk to me anymore. And I don't know what this relationship is. And I couldn't really understand what it was. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was, and and that's why I think I have so many emotions towards the Carolis because you abandoned me at the Olympics, which I forgot to mention. They didn't even say goodbye to me; they just left me there, and I was like, had to call my parents, and be like, "Hey, can you come pick me up?" Because our team was staying at this emptied out fraternity house that used to be for uh, the fraternities, but it was emptied out, cleaned out, obviously, and it was in great condition when we went to Emory University, and. All of a sudden I wake up one morning, I went to knock and say hello and somebody down the hall was like, oh, don't you know they left already? And I'm like, nobody said goodbye to me. Nobody brought me to my parents. I'm a minor. Oh, mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do? Because at the time we only had those little pagers. We didn't, we didn't have like phones. Pre-cell phone. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I remember those blue little pagers. And that's how we would communicate. And I'm like, just what in the world? I don't know what to do. So I went downstairs and I'm like, I'm eating food. So I, I saw J.C. <laughs> and Dog. And I'm like, we're eating. We're going to raid the kitchen. And we were like throwing Fruit Loops in the air and like <laughs> the pictures. And we had freedom because we could eat, you know? And I did anyway. And I was super excited to just go and eat. And without somebody, you know, watching me like a hawk when I'm eating, which is super uncomfortable. And so anyway, going through all of that and then on tour, just being like, what is our relationship now? Like that was so strange to me that all of a sudden you're my coach for all this period of time, you know me so well, you've talked to my family, and yet you act like I'm a complete stranger. And people did that. Like people and I saw people wanting to like just be friends with me because of the Olympic status, but as a 15-year-old you don't know that. People trying to mooch off of you, people wanting to be your friend, but falsely wanting to be your friend. And then they want something from you. It was always somebody wanted an uh, ulterior motive to be near me. And I couldn't distinguish who was my real friend and who wasn't. And it was a really hard time because there was a lot of jealousy. There was a lot of envy around me. And also I was going through the sadness because I was like, who am I? What You know, well, what and, and to
0: top it off, like being a 15 year old is hard, hard enough, enough. Exactly. just being a 15 year old without all of this drama that most adults can't handle. <laughs>
1: right. right. And then I'm basically alone on the tour. And then my aunt Janice was brought in as a chaperone to kind of keep an eye on me at certain times and certain tour stops. And it was just a really interesting life changing and growing experience. But the fact that my coach didn't even barely acknowledge me as a human being was really, really bizarre. And I just found that behavior very strange. And so I think there's just some things that manifested inside from all of that as well from the Olympics, taking that, then telling my parents that I should quit gymnastics. That was the icing on the cake for my dad. Yeah. He was like, what are you talking about? She's 15 years old. She still has so much gymnastics and talent left. He's like, no, no, she should just quit because we, we don't want, we want to retire. We don't want to coach her anymore. And it was very selfish of them to say that. Now I can say that. And I, my dad was like, he didn't accept that. So he's like, we're going to just build a gym because where are we going to train? So I ended up going to Cypress Academy over in Houston for a period of time while I was on tour and I was in the in-between phase. And my dad's like, well, nobody will take you and who's going to coach you. And so we have no other option. But, you know, Martin Bell abandoned you not once, but twice. You know, they abandoned me at the Olympics and then they abandoned me in this. And then he acts like he doesn't know me anymore. And it's just really strange to, to keep respecting you and keep coming back to more Yes, I'm like begging for more of you and I'm treated like less than a human being. Like I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand and I could not articulate it then. I just felt like just deep down that I I despised them. You know what I mean? I just mm-hmm. did not like them at all. And it was just starting to turn into a very like I don't want to be around you. I don't even want to hear your name. You made me not enjoy the sport. You made me feel have all these feelings and it's not the sport, it's you. And every time I'm around you, I feel those feelings. So anyway, So then my dad's, I'm like, oh, a gym is huge undertaking. And he was like, we're going to do it. And so they ended up doing that. And we found some other coaches. And again, it was hard to find the right fit. You know, it's hard to find a coach that's going to connect with you that knows that high level, but can motivate you. And so I went through a lot of coaches after we opened our gym and 97 was a bit of a rocky year. I had gone through a growth spurt. And then I went through another growth spurt for 98. But finally, we found Luminica at the time. My dad went to Romania to actually find her. She was helping coach the junior national team. He went to Romania and brought her home right before the new year at the end of 97, around December. And right before the new year, he brought her over so she could start training me for the Goodwill Games in 98. Wow! And so I grew about 10 inches. I was, wow, yeah, I felt so out of shape at that time. I felt in just a completely like different body. I was Mm -hmm. no longer the pixie 14, 75 year old. I was almost a hundred pounds and I was 16 and it was changing. And I was going through, you know, some physical changes. My body leaned out, but I felt like I couldn't do my skills anymore. So I was just a completely different person, but I finally had consistency. We made And I got along. It was the first time I'd had a coach coach me in Romanian fully from start to finish because she didn't speak English really. And so at that time I was training with her for that year. and. It just like seemed to click, and it seemed to fall into place, and a lot of my training started to progress again. And then she would weigh me three times a day too, like morning, afternoon, and night, and it was water weight. And she'd make me run at night and go to the track and field and run like two miles after two a day practices so I could lose weight. So wow. she was also very like tough on my weight, and I knew that I had to be uh, leaned out, but I also was growing, so I was trying to stop the natural progression of my. Body, Mm -hmm. and so at the time there were you know times. I think that's how she was also trained when she was part of the gymnastics team there in Romania. So that was very
0: very common.
1: Uh, If you hear babies in the background, I'm at the gym, so you know (laughs) don't mind the babies. There's some we're keeping
0: it real, just keeping it real.
1: That's right, you know. But anyhow, it was just a really interesting time. But I do credit her for for getting me back into a certain shape again. And there were some disagreements, you know, that we had, but 98 felt like a completely different moment for me. Unfortunately, it was unhealthy path on my body and physically in in that sense, if it makes sense, because I was being weighed so much and I was, everything was about my weight too. Um, But I think that's all she knew at the time. But I did get leaned out. I did get into the best shape of my life. And I was able to get back on top of that podium, which the Carolis never thought I could do without them. And they wanted me to quit. And so for me, it was such a vindication because USA Gymnastics didn't want to let me compete there at the Goodwill Games either. Oh, really? They had to send a national team coaching staff to our gym to evaluate me while I was training with luminitsa quietly, privately. Nobody knew what I was doing. So I was behind all four closed doors in a separate division of the gym where nobody could really have access to. So nobody saw my progress at all. It was just Luminita and me in the gym. The daily progress was happening. And and I started to feel those changes in my routines and lines and everything changed. So once USA Gymnastics brought this um, national team staff member to evaluate me, he told them she's ready. You know, he was impressed. And that's my green light to go to goodwill games my dad had to get into an argument with the former vice president of the women's program he was like, what are you talking about you won't let give her a chance like that's insane like, she's ready and so that's why they sent someone out he he was notorious for getting in arguments with people but you know he's trying to defend his daughter and at the time somebody had to you know he may mm-hmm. have had unorthodox ways but you know what he cared in his own way he cared and I realized that it just it was not the way that people wanted him to be. Right. But sometimes you got to fight for things. And my dad was a fighter in a lot of ways, you know, pioneer coming to this country and being the youngest of four children. So he fought for me. And I always appreciate that because I would not have been allowed to go had they not you know, brought someone to evaluate. me. They thought I was so out of shape. And the Crowley's kept telling them, oh, she's not going to be able to make it back. She's not going to be able to do as well. Like they kept putting me down to people Mm. and it was just really sad because here are my Olympic coaches and yet they kept being condescending towards me and, and saying negative things to people about me and not believing in me. And I just found it so exhausting to try to continue to please them. And little by little, I started distancing myself and started realizing, you know what, you're just bad people and I have got to rid my life of that. I do not want to be around that anymore. And that's why I started being like, no, I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm not going to pretend that I like you. I'm not going to pretend that everything is okay. When I walk into a room and go and kiss your ring, like I'm not going to do that. And once I stopped doing that, it's like the walls caved in. It was like, oh my gosh. You know,
0: you're like a good way or a bad way. Like,
1: well, it was like everyone was turning on me.
0: (laughs) Oh, okay. Now, gotcha. I didn't know if you felt freer or, or it was everybody kind of
1: sense, but everything opportunities wise, like I lost everything because they had such power still and people believed them rather than one outlier gymnast saying things. And for so long, I took so much heat, Mm -hmm. but the Goodwill games was such a vindication, like such a moment where I was like, yes, this is my Olympic gold. This is exactly because I'm the only American woman to ever win Goodwill Games and still to this day. So for me, it was, I mean, there were Olympic champions there, Svetlana Korkina, Simon Aminar. I mean, there are people who had tremendous accomplishments there, Maria Olaru, and I was standing between two Romanians. And it just felt really, really good to know that in a world-class stage, I was on top. That was like my world's, my Olympics. It was just an opportunity for me to show this is who I could be as a gymnast at my peak. And I would say that was one of my greatest competitions of my life, other than my 95 nationals as well, because that was like me bursting onto the stage. But any, any time you make history, it's, it's a special moment. And so that to me was, and I did it without the Crowley. So I felt like, Hey, you didn't think I could do this anymore. And I think it's just an athlete mindset, Laura, like you've probably- people wrong. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I want to prove you wrong. And I think it just stays with you in your oh, life. Yeah. and you're like, no, you, you just doubt me. Just doubt me. That'll be fun.
0: You know, and that's, that's like when you have people in your life, like, yeah, I've been kicked off teams and things like that and, and called a waste of space and told I'm never going to be enough. And then not, not to the extent that you've experienced that, but, but it does put that in you. Like it, it I feel like it, it takes somebody in one of two directions. They either quit and shrink off and believe the lies or they do what we did. And we're like, well, let's see, let's prove you wrong, you know, and then you come back and it's, it's motivation, you know? Right. And it can be
1: exhausting for as many times as I've had it happen to me and people have turned on me and I've had so much hate thrown my way. And and I'm like, geez, I'm only doing the right thing. Like I'm being honest and I'm speaking for what's right and the truth. And sometimes people just don't want to hear it. And Mm -hmm. it's just unbelievable to me. I spoke no lies. I spoke the truth. I was speaking about a pain that had happened to try to help. And I knew it was unhealthy. I knew things were unhealthy and I still to this day feel that I'm paying for that. I don't know. It's just, there are certain things you can just feel. People are not letting you in, in -hmm. certain areas. Right. And you can just sense it. You try. This is very
0: political too. Yeah.
1: Yes. It's very. And so, and it's like they're holding a grudge for eternity. and, And sometimes I feel like within my sport and it's just like, I was right. And you're still trying to deny me things that I feel that I've earned. Mm-hmm. Know, it wasn't bad enough that they tried to wipe me from the history books, right? Yeah. They tried to pretend like I didn't exist and not invite me to things other than team things that they absolutely had to and all of that. And it was just like, this is my community. Wow. I get more love from the UFC community than I ever do from USA mm-hmm. gymnastics. <laughs> you know, and it just is just like appalling to me. And it's just very, very bizarre. Because if anything, I'm owed an apology because I was right. I was mm-hmm. right about everything. And there's never been a public apology. There's been some private ones and people came around and, you know, they told me, oh, you know, you were right all along. And But that doesn't make up for a decade of lost finances, lost opportunities. I lost everything when I mm-hmm. spoke out, everything, every opportunity. And I had to claw my way back, Laura, and figure out how I was going to make a living. What was I going to do from the sport that abandoned me? And all these people think I, I hate the sport because I'm speaking up about something that's very real and and negative, but it happened and it was very hard in my life and it was hard in so many people's lives and it was wrong.
0: I first started using Katsu after I discovered it could be used for recovery. After speaking with a Navy SEAL friend that had used Katsu to help him recover from traumatic injuries, I decided to give it a try for an ongoing tricep issue I had. Within the first week, I noticed the cramping I had in my tricep would completely stop after a katsu session. It also helped me recover much faster after platform workouts. After seeing such great recovery, I started to add katsu into some strength training and plyometric workouts as well. And the craziest side effect that I noticed was that I was hardly ever sore from a hard workout that I did while wearing the katsu bands. I feel like Katsu has given me the ability to get stronger while recovering faster. Katsu is the pioneer and gold standard of the emerging blood flow restriction market. Navy SEALs, world champions, and gold medalists use Katsu daily for improved performance, quicker rehabilitation, and unprecedented recovery from hard workouts, intense competitions, and even jet lag. Katsu was invented in Japan and has been used at every winter and summer Olympics since 1988. Katsu Global offers a variety of easy-to-use products that can be used safely and effectively in the comfort of your home, office, or during travel. It can be used for any workout or between training and competitions for recovery. To learn more about Katsu and even get ten percent off, go to slash katsu That's slash A A T S U. Yes, totally. And I this is where I want to really get into what kept you going and speaking the truth and not shutting down, because like you came out with your your memoir, Off Balance, New York Times bestseller and you talked about a lot of this stuff and you know now years later we find out about the whole Larry Nassar thing and all of that stuff so people know now that there's other stuff going on so mm-hmm. how did you stay strong through all of that and hold to the truth you know what i mean when people are trying to shut you down and cancel you and all of that stuff and you still spoke up and you still kept going like what what kept you on that path and what was your strength in that time i guess
1: oh laura it was not easy I mean, just having teammates write me on Facebook and say not so nice things, former teammates who, you know, I was like, wait a second, you know, who are you to judge me? Like, you know what that environment was or people saying that I don't know what she's talking about. And and it was just really disheartening that not one person would come and speak up. There were a few that would speak up behind the scenes, but they didn't want it public. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when it's happening in that way. It was trickling out and it took years and years and years to finally get some support and momentum. I was always the one. It was like so easy to pinpoint the outlier as sour grapes, bitter. Right. It is so easy to do that. Right. And it was like, I had to carry the cross on my back. And, and I was just like, where are you guys? Where is everybody? Where are everywhere. I would look. It was like crickets. Nobody would speak up. And I'm like, you guys all know this is happening And I know everyone has to come to their own realization to speak up at their own time. But I was just like, I couldn't believe I was left there all alone and I didn't expect a ton of people, but I expected people to come forward. Like, Mm -hmm. come on, like this is happening. Are we just blinded so much? And are we so terrified of losing our good standing with USA Gymnastics that, that you are willing to just turn the, the blind eye and turn the other cheek and just take some more and, I was appalled and I was devastated. And there were times I would sit back like, why am I doing this? I'm the only one who's suffering. I'm the only one who everything has been taken away from. I'm the only one. And everyone looks down on me like I did something wrong in my community. Here and there, when I would go to something, I felt like such a, an outcast. I felt like a rebel. And, and I was not a rebel. This is not how I was raised. Like It just, to me, seemed so such strange behavior by the community itself it really broke my heart inside. And there were times I have to admit I was angry, but I was angry with how people were behaving and how Mm -hmm. disappointing it was that people were stripping me of opportunities and shutting the door. And my agent even said it was at the time, and you know, Janie, she had even said she could not believe how she's like, we're putting you out there. And it's just like door closed, door closed, door closed. And she's like, it is really strange. She's like to have all these things happen. And I said, people are, it's USA Gymnastics telling people, because at the time it was Steve Penny, who was the president of USA Gymnastics, telling people, don't hire her. She's bad news. Yet he was the one who was being unethical. And yet he got to have his payday and all this and make half a million. And, you know, I had to struggle for over a decade to figure out where my next paycheck would come from. And And that's okay the struggle is not where I was, you know, heartbroken. It was, I was heartbroken with the community that just stranded me. Not only was I abandoned by my coaches, I was abandoned by the community and mm-hmm. it was gut wrenching. And my husband at the time, boyfriend, cause we were together, you know, all during that time, thank God he was a pillar of strength for me and encouraged me and said, you're doing the right thing. You know, it's okay. It's mm-hmm. just us against the world, I guess, you know, And it felt that way. It honestly did because everywhere I would turn, it was just people acting really strangely, Laura. Like you wouldn't even believe it. People you've known like your whole life and people you've known that you saw were your friends, but yet that's why loyalty to me is so important. And I cherish that in a human being so much because I saw people just wanna take advantage, wanna hurt, want to put down, yet they knew the truth and they wouldn't say it at the time. And Mm -hmm. it was just mind boggling. I was blown away by the inability of people to do what was right when it was hard. It's easy to come out when everybody's coming out. It's hard to do it when you're there by yourself day in and day out, year after year, and your story doesn't change. You know, it never changed. And so that was probably the really hardest part. But after seven years, almost about that decade in when I was literally at my wits end and I was like, Mike, I don't even know why am I doing this? Like, I am the only one suffering and I continue to suffer and people continue to treat me like I'm just a bad person. And he's like, you know, that's not the case. I know that's not the case. And he was, you know, he was my confidant at those trying moments. And he's like, it's okay. One day. It'll all come on. He even doubted at times. I doubted, you know, but then we're like, no, like I know in my heart it's always been the right thing. I'm not lying. So when your story is right and it's true, it's always true. You mm-hmm. know, there is no false information about it. So I know that this is true, and my recollection is always the same. It's you know, this is what happened. And finally, at that seven, when the Houston Chronicle, Laura, I will for have this forever ingrained in my memory. When the Houston Chronicle wrote Dave Barron's a sports writer. And it says, Mochiano vindicated in a 2007 article. I about fell over and died. I thought, this is the day. This is the day I've been waiting for. I cannot believe it. Because I had talked to David Barron for a long time. Mm-hmm. And he was questioning my story, you know, as a journalist does. And that's fine. You do your job. But I knew he had reservations and doubts. For several years, I had been talking to him. Mm-hmm. And he would always go back and get you know try to get the Coroli side and get Marta's quotes and get my quotes in the article. And I was like, okay, I see this, I see how it's going. But finally, he was the only one out of all of these years, one out of all the stories and all the interviews I ever did that said Mochi But I hold on to that because I'm like, like I'm gonna frame one. it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. And I I don't even have it framed anywhere, but but in my mind, it's framed in my mind. There you I gotta put it up somewhere, but it was like. Uh, And I think it was, was it November, 2017? Anyway, it's out there. It was like, I could breathe a sigh of relief that finally one person finally said it. And then that's when all the NASA stuff, right as you're about to like, feel like you're done with this cause. Like I'm ready for someone else to take the reins. Mm -hmm. I've done my piece. I've said it. Now it's time for others to step up. That's how I felt. And Mm -hmm. right at that moment, Laura, it was like, God was like, okay, you suffered enough. Boom. The headline comes out and I'm like, oh, I can breathe. I'm helping these women in the meantime. They're coming to me about the Nassar story. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, Like, what is going on? This is starting to lead up to something even bigger and abuse becoming even bigger than Mm -hmm. everyone ever even thought, which I knew it had hints of sexual as well. But in a lot of my experiences, it was emotional, it was verbal and the physical part and I had everything but the sexual. So I want to just be very clear, but I was helping all of the victims because they were coming to me because I had been the only one speaking up and they could Mm -hmm. trust me. Mm -hmm. And that's why trust is so important because they could tell me was something that was so dark in their lives and I could help them go get help. And I said, you have to report it. He is never going to go to jail if you don't report it. So anyway, so that started kind of unfolding and I was getting exhausted. I was helping so many people and It was just emotionally taxing to hear so many people, their stories, and they would come to me and I would direct them to the right help and say, you have to go and you have to first report it because it has not been reported if it hasn't been reported. And then you need to go seek help. And here's an avenue. Here's a nonprofit. This is someone I know, but you can always go to someone, you know, you know, or you feel comfortable with. This is just an opportunity. It's a segue into like, get you the right help. And then you can take it there and go where you want with it. But please, please, if you don't do anything else, report it, because you absolutely need to know you're right. And that was wrong. And that's illegal. And they just were scared. And they're like, but I'm going to get in trouble. And they're like, well, look at what happened to you. And I'm like, but this is illegal. They violated you. No, so like, you cannot, you cannot allow yourself to believe that, please. You know, and I said, if he, he's, he's still in the community. If he did this to you, he did this to others. I guarantee it. And so uh, that just kind of started unfolding and, and right about that time, literally Nassar shortly after that got arrested by the FBI with, when he was throwing out all that child pornography. He had like 20,000 photos and probably even more of child pornography that he got caught with that the FBI seized and he had thrown out his hard drive or something and then they had found it and that's how they got him. If they had been one day late, the trash would have picked it up and they wouldn't have been able to seize that. I imagine, I think that's kind of how it went down because it was like in the nick of time that they caught it. And the rest is kind of history, Laura. During that time after this, I started to feel, oh my gosh, I did do the right thing and I stuck it out and I stuck it out and I knew I was doing the right thing. But you have your moments of doubt because it's scary. You're losing everything. Nobody is believing you. Why are people acting so strange? I mean, I can give you a laundry list of things of why I should have stopped years ago, because I was not doing it for selfish reasons. I lost money, you know, I lost, and I was doing it because I needed to heal. That's why I wrote my book. It was like my therapy. I wanted Mm -hmm. to heal and I needed to get it off of my chest because I was going crazy inside. And when you have so much pent up, I wasn't, I never saw a therapist. So I had to do some sort of release, some sort of, you know, therapeutic, Avenue for me. And this was it. This was me getting it out. And whether people understood it or not, what I realized in the end, they didn't walk in my shoes. Not for mm-hmm. one second. They didn't understand what I went through, what the training was like. Oh, well, why didn't you speak up sooner? You know, the criticism came right away. Why didn't you speak up sooner if I was so bad? Well, you didn't walk in my shoes. You don't know what that environment was like. You don't know what it was like for my family, you who had modest means. You didn't know what it was like. They couldn't just pick up and leave before the Olympics and go find another coach. And it doesn't work that way. You have to have some stability, whether it was negative stability or not. Sometimes it's the stability, you know. And mm-hmm. so there were a lot of factors. Well, you should have told, well, I didn't have that relationship with people like you maybe do or your parents to say, hey, I'm being abused in this way. I couldn't articulate it to them. They had their own Stresses. How could I be another stress to the stress is already happening and come home and I'm walking on eggshells. My father was temperamental. So, you know, it's easy to judge, but when, you know, when you don't have that perspective and you're not looking at it from the perspective of my eyes and what I went through, you're clearly going to have a different vantage point. And I didn't grow up like many people, probably like, not like anybody, you know, because my life was so crazy, but that's at the end, it just, it all made me who I am today, Laura. And that's kind of where I'm getting at is it all just made me who I am, all of the trials, all of the tribulations. When people say, you know, it's like a cliche made me who I am, da, da, da. but I really know 100% these struggles made me become outspoken. And all of the paths that I had in my life made me become vocal when I thought I would never had a voice. I was a shy kid. <laughs> I was just, like scared to speak up. And then for me to be the one that was the voice, it's so bizarre when I think about it. But deep down inside, I knew that I knew that I, it was the right thing and I knew it and nobody would believe it for so long. And then finally, but even when that came, it wasn't like I got a thousand apologies and I had to be okay with that. And that was probably tough too, that all of you that critique me, now you're like liking my stuff or now you're, you're pretending I'm like, wow. Fame is so fleeting, you know. It's yeah. just like I—I I don't like the fame part. So when you know children are like, "Oh, I want to be famous," I'm like, "Please, can you have a better goal? Like, it's okay to have the success and be noticed, but can you just have another goal? Like that—that that shouldn't be your main goal.
0: Like, they can be." An <laughs> and let me tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I have a question. So now you own your gym, Dominique Mushiano Gymnastics Center, awesome, and you're coaching. You're a mom of athletes, like so when you think about an athlete that's coming up that might be in some kind of situation whether it's a, a you know a range of abuses or or whatever it is like how do you talk someone into or encourage someone to speak out when they're scared like like you said like it's either maybe they feel like they're the only one and so i think well maybe i just shouldn't say anything or i'm afraid i won't get picked for this team if i speak up or i'm going to lose my scholarship um i know there have been some issues within college in the last year and, Mm -hmm. you know, like whatever their situation is, athletes are usually scared to speak up for a reason, you know, and there's usually something they're afraid of losing. And Mm -hmm. so what would you say to encourage those athletes experiencing something, you know, abuse or safety issues or whatever it is in their sport?
1: You're absolutely right, Laura. There is a sacrifice with it. And I think that's how you have to look at it. And you have to weigh those options. You have to look at it. And I think that's why a lot of people didn't speak out when I did, because they did not want to lose certain things. They they were afraid of losing good standing. They were afraid of not getting invited to events. They wanted to keep with the status quo. And I get that. However, at the end of the day, can you live with yourself? Can you live with yourself if you don't do the right thing? It depends where your moral compass is. And it's okay. Whatever is best for you is okay. I'm not here to tell anyone what's right for them, but if it's illegal and it is abusive and is harmful to yourself, it is not okay. You know, you have to seek an avenue of trust, which there's a lot of anonymous hotlines you can call and and you can tell them and you can be directed. You know, this is best spoken to a, a psychologist or somebody who can help navigate what you went through, an expert, because I'm not an expert. I can just tell you what I went through. And my advice is only through, you know, the experiences that I know. But I would I guide them to a professional you know, assistance and also report to the police. If you strongly know in your heart that this is wrong, you need to go to someone who has some authority and can help you with this, because no matter what you do, until you take that step, it's not going to start healing and moving forward. And it could be a very long time to heal. There are parts of my past that were very, very hard to look back on and, and still talk about. I still get choked up about certain things because it was so painful. But I talk about it because I can heal. I can, you know, and I'm okay with it. Even though if I get choked up, doesn't mean that I'm not over it. It just means like, man, if I think about it deeply, it's like, oh, it's like an apple in your throat. It's just like gets stuck and it's hard to you know, speak and you just get so emotional. But, But for the most part, you have to be okay with losing things and you have to be okay because you know in your heart, it's the right thing. And if it costs that, then it's going to lead you to another direction. And it's going to also start the healing process. And what's more important to you? Um, You know, I certainly want each person to know their self-worth because I think for so long, people had put me down that my self-worth wasn't worth much. And so that's where I think when you're abused, that's what happens is you're so put down so low that you don't feel like you deserve Anything you don't feel like you should tell anyone because you don't deserve it and you don't deserve to be happy or you don't deserve healing, and that's not the case when someone's demoralized you so deeply. That is a very tough place, and it's hard to make decisions because you're not thinking clearly. But I would advocate for you to get someone you know and trust them. But if there's any abuse at all, you have to report it, and that's what I kept saying to the women who came to me it's wrong, you have to report it. And trust me, it's going to be hard. I know it is, but I'm here for you. And if you have a trusted friend and you feel comfortable, start there. Then make your way to the police. Then make your way to a professional. And the police know how to handle this. So they will guide you as well. They will take the report. They will guide you. They will give you options, um, what to do. But seek uh, an avenue of help where there are professionals in this abusive field all over the internet and, and very... Reliable sources to help you because people went through this. So don't ever feel like you're alone. And I felt like I was alone, Laura, because I was so out there by myself. And I get it, it's scary. It was. I felt the same emotions and I did not like being blacklisted. I did not like being an outcast. But I think now, ever since the NASAR stuff, there's a lot more coming out and there's so many more people that I think it's opened the door a little bit more for people to be comfortable. But again, it is a personal choice too. At the end of the day, you have to be okay with the consequences. And they're not always
0: pretty. Well, and that's the consequences either way. Speaking exactly. up has consequences, yes. but not speaking up could have a lot worse consequences. Exactly.
1: As well. Exactly. Yeah. And that's yeah. important to
0: remember. Well, now that you've shifted roles, and like we said, you've got your gymnastics center, your coaching. What is that like to you? How do you view the sport now, and what has changed or improved, or what still needs to improve within the sport? Oh my goodness! I think we're going
1: to be a, a work in progress for eternity, um, because that's human nature is at play, right? And there's going to be a new batch of a generation that needs to learn the history of the what happened. You know how history repeats itself. Like we don't ever want that happening. Right. But there is a saying because some generations they get removed from history, and then you forget this has happened or this dark chapter. Oh, it's all somewhere really, really back far away, but it can happen again. So I think the change begins with us, people like you, people like me, where the change within our sports, every sport, every you know institute, has its opportunity for their bad things to happen. There are bad people everywhere, but there are good people everywhere. So you have to just make sure you're surrounding yourself with good people. I have a very close eye on what's going on in my program. I, you know, have very strict rules on the floor and make sure that nobody's in the gym by themselves with an athlete. Obviously, that's a safe sport rule as well. And, you know, there are just certain rules in place that if all the gyms follow them, there's a much tighter ship you can run. And some people are more loose with the rules, just like any business. Some people are a little tighter. I tend to be a little tighter because I know the devastation that has happened in our sport, and I have to be. And that's important to me. It's important that these athletes are staying safe. It's important that they're staying in a healthy environment. And I'm very aware of my athlete's body, their mindset, how they're feeling. So when I can challenge them a little, when I need to taper back a little, when I'm telling them, okay, that's enough, don't push yourself too much more. So I think because of that history and because I have a rich, colorful history of all sorts of things that have happened, it's made me a better coach. And I can have a good pulse on what my athletes are feeling. Their body language tells me everything. And I just have to encourage them to advocate for themselves. I ask them, what's wrong? Tell me, you need to learn to communicate because you need to learn what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. What are you feeling? And that's something that was never pulled out. We were never allowed. You just shut up, do what you're told. And that's fine. Like there's a time for that, right? There's a time for you know, I really am big on work ethic and being disciplined as a team. Like we all have the same goals and we're all encouraging and all this stuff. And yoga is a big part of my curriculum. So there's like that balance, that organic balance of yoga in their curriculum. And so I include that as well. So they have a power practice with me and then they have a yin practice with another you know, instructor, they train 20 hours a week, and then we have one hour of dance. So that's kind of the the balance, the yin and the yang of their practice. And I encourage them always to speak, okay, advocate for yourself. What's going on? Not in a, you know, a disrespectful way, but in a way that you're speaking up. I said, you got to speak up for yourself. This is what I'm helping them teach, because I know when you're young, it's hard sometimes to advocate for yourself as it was for me. But I have a completely safe environment to do it in. I mean, it, you have no worries of Telling me, you can tell me, but you know, I'm going to be there supporting you. Not like I, I was back when I was a child where there was no support of saying anything that would get you in trouble. I mean, I could have said anything, you know, I would have gotten in trouble.
0: Right. And I think you're hitting on something really, really important for coaches listening to is that you need to listen to your athletes and teach them to communicate because athletes, especially athletes who started young have Mm -hmm. learned to be quiet and do what they're told, which is a great skill. Like you said, there's a time for that, but they also need to learn how to speak up if they're not feeling well, if things aren't going great, if there's, cause there's outside factors outside of the pool or the gym or whatever it is as well that can contribute negatively or positively inside of it. So um, I think it's really important for coaches to encourage their athletes to communicate, not to talk back to them, but to exactly. talk to them. Communication is so, so important. I had a great coach. I was very, very fortunate. My diving coach has always been huge on communication to the point where I hated it. Like we communicated too much. I was like, I don't, I'm not wired this way. I am I'm not like good at talking to people, but I am now I'm, I've grown up a little bit, but that was something very valuable that he taught me that has helped in so many relationships since then. So coaches, um, parents, yeah, this is the great tools. Keep the communication alive, teach your athlete, how to say exactly what Dominic said. How are you feeling? What's going on? You know, I think that's, it sounds so simple, but people don't do
1: it. No. And it's so hard to pull it out of them. These are young adolescent girls. I have ages 13 to 18 that I'm coaching now. And it was 11 to 17 before. And, you know, some of them have gone on and uh, I'm always trying to ask them, how are you feeling? You know, what are you feeling? Are your legs tired? Are your, is your back tired? Okay. We need to do a little bit more of this today. What can you handle today? And, you know, that was never a question we got asked. So it's just, I think they're just like, Oh, you know, to them it's, it's normal because that's how I coach, but I just, I'm very in tune. And I would say that's one of my, I think, good assets uh, of coaching and good attributes that I can give, give to them. And it just feels really natural for me because of all all that I've gone through. And and I really try to encourage them. Like, No, 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 I'm okay. I'm like, no, you're tearing up. There's a reason you're tearing up. You need to tell me because it's a safety thing. And I also, if you're pushing harder than you need to be right now, I'm going to back you up. And some of them don't, they don't want to me to back them off. So I'm like, and I said this, this week, I said, I have to be the adult in the room. I said, no more, no more. You're (laughs) going to get hurt you know, and sometimes you do like coaches think, Oh, just the athletes, they don't always know what's their limit. You have to be careful as a coach. The athlete will tell you, yes, yes, yes. But, but are you reading their signals? Well, are you watching their body language? Because that one more has caused somebody to get paralyzed before, or that one more has caused someone to get injured before. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very careful of, can she really handle this or not? And you have to be such a good decision maker in those moments and so in tune with your athletes. So they absolutely don't get hurt. And mm-hmm. that's one thing that I really try to keep the athletes as healthy as possible and keep them on soft landings as much as I can. And only when it's time for them to do their big skills, like we start segueing to the floor because it's a long season. Their mm-hmm. shins are going to have shin splints and fractures if we're on the floor pounding all the time like we did, because I did have one. So I know. Mm-hmm. And so I always try to keep them on soft landings because the sport is hard enough on the body as it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that coaches should keep in mind a lot more too, is just protect their bodies, mm-hmm. protect them because- Give them they, longevity, right? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. They won't have the opportunity of longevity if you don't protect them when they're young. If you pound the heck out of them when they're young, yeah, before Seavers hits in their heels and before Ashgood slaughters and before everything aches and the growth plates, you're pounding you know, you have to be careful how much they're beating, they're taking at an early age, just because they're young. Yes, they can handle some of it, but, but in a smart way.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, who are some of your favorite gymnasts that we should be watching out for today?
1: Some of my favorite gymnasts, uh, oh my goodness. I know that's a hard question. (laughs) There's so many, I'm just so glad that, the NIL has come into play because I see so many gymnasts who are Olympians that are going into college, having best of both world experiences, mm. which I think is awesome. With the Jade Carey and Jordan Childs and all of these beautiful athletes that have come into the NIL and are also Olympians, and so, but it's also it's made the collegiate gymnastics even more exciting. I mean, they. Mm-hmm. Put stands in the seats. And so it's great that they can compete in the elite scene and also go back to college. And I think I would have loved that opportunity had it been available when I was competing. So I think that that movement of our sport is heading in a good direction. Obviously, we need to continue to just stay on top of, you know, why this all happened. I think just always chipping away at how this happened, why it happened, and why didn't we listen to the people that said things? And what are we still resistant on listening to, because yes, there have been some changes and there have been some things and people are saying we're moving in the right direction. And yes, there are some things that are, and you're not going to change everybody's mind, right? You're not going to change everybody who's been there a long time and has certain beliefs and certain systems that they're not willing to change because change is hard for people when you've been so ingrained in spotting a certain way. You know, when I tell people like, you can't touch there. And I'm like, you got to watch where your hands are being placed because that's no longer a technique. Okay. When I see people poking at the butts, I'm like, you can't touch there. Oh, I forgot. No, you can't forget. Like, that's not okay. And I know you seem to think it's harmless, but that is not an area that you can do that. You got to remember. And I know I'm just uh, so used to say, yeah, that was part of the problem. Why it got so And and I understand some people don't mean it in a harmful way, but they just want the athlete to squeeze their bottom. But there's a better way to do it now. And you have to just think about those things. And and people who have been around a long time, it's hard to change some of those ways and those mindsets, you know? Mm -hmm. But with the program that I have, I feel like we're, you know, heading in the right direction. The change begins with us. I always say that it begins with us. And then how you lead is is what kind of environment you're going to have. And I think that that's something that, Um, I take seriously and sometimes people like it and sometimes they don't. It's not everybody's (laughs) cup of tea and not everybody wants to have those tricks kind of rules and they'll just, you know, go somewhere else. And that's okay. If you don't want that kind of environment, then you're not gonna be part of that change with us. And that's okay. You can go and have a different leadership style. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm okay with that. But we need a lot of good people to continue this journey and path because it's only one person can't do all of it, you each person in their own gym. And there are a lot of good people and good gym owners and people who care about the gymnasts that are in the sport and community. And that's great. But there are a lot of people who give me the cold shoulder when I go to competitions or give me, you know, an evil eye or something like that. And it's just really, really strange, Laura. But I continue to be on my path and on my own journey. And whether you like me or not, or you talk to me or not, or if you want to be petty or not, I'm just going to do my thing. And I just learned that. Run your race, run your own race. And if you want to be petty and you don't want to talk to me, I always am like, hi, (laughs) okay, let's move on. You know, it's just, I just don't get it. I just feel like our community needs a big lesson on professionalism. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can continue to upgrade that, that would be awesome. And I start with my own gym. Like I have certain levels of professionalism that I expect, and most gyms don't. I don't know if in diving it's the same way, Laura, but you know, there's a certain level of expectation. I mean, it's it's not like difficult, but I mean, it's just a level of expectation, right. right? And you know, yes. And you walk in and you say hello to someone. Don't just walk in and I'm walking talking to your back. Like, it's just so weird to me. I just mm-hmm. wasn't brought up that that's like normal behavior. And so that is just like one little simple thing you can do to be a good human. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so it's just, to me, there are certain things where I always try to say hello. I always try to do things that I I, I would like to be treated the same way and, and just up the level of professionalism. I think in our community, we we need it. I think we desperately need it. I've seen so many things that were unprofessional over the years. And I'm hoping that, you know, we can be that change a little bit more. There are some people that are great, but it's just not been an industry that is known to be professional. And and I think if we can up that, I would love to see that change in, in the upcoming years as well.
0: Nice. Well, Dominique, thank you for coming on today for being so open and vulnerable about some hard topics, you know that that have been very painful. and and I know that's not always easy to speak about. So I thank you for just, yes, being real with us today. and where where can we follow you online to continue watching your journey and watching this change that you're inviting into the gymnastics world?
1: Yes. well, I'm on Instagram and all the social media forums. Um on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Um, you can find me at. Dominique Mochianu for most places or D Mochianu. Our YouTube channel is Mochianu's Way and you can find us there too. We've been putting out some great content, really proud of the professional level of the YouTube channel. On sometimes the most professional levels don't always get those hits right away. But I think in the end, I'm proud of the quality that we provide. And the, the care and attention we provide to each story. So that's more of the content we will give you if that's something you're seeking. But there's definitely something out there for everybody. But that's just the way that I want this you know, YouTube series to run. And I have a great partnership with my friend Andrea, who's a producer and has her own media production company. And so uh, I'm really excited to share that and see where that grows and goes in the upcoming years and talks about our journey in gymnastics. And maybe there's going to be some uh, surprises in the upcoming years with some interesting, I would say surprises of life that will be coming out. And it may be somewhere where everybody will have access to, but there's some big projects in the works. So let's
0: put it that way. Well, man, that's not a teaser, (laughs) a cliffhanger or anything. Um, I guess that's a great note (laughs) to end on. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guests. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.